the Bible tells us that in three days the world was changed forever. On, on Good Friday, Jesus was crucified. On Saturday, his followers were confused. And on Easter Sunday, he rose from the dead and hope rose with him. Maybe you uh, heard that in our community in this past week, there was a family who had a, a big fire in their house. It started in the garage. It did a lot of damage. I saw some pictures, and it was a little bit startling to see how much damage it had done in such a short amount of time. Thankfully, the family was able to get out and were not physically harmed in any way, but a lot of the house was destroyed. That family goes to the crossing, been here a part of our church for a really long time. As they were driving away that night, now you can imagine all the feelings you have, the anxiety, the worries, the fear, uh, the thankfulness that everybody is physically unharmed, the, the, the concern about tomorrow and where do you live and how do you start over and all those kinds of thoughts in your head. As you drive away, the firefighters are still there. They're still uh, fighting the fire. The house is still smoldering. And their 10-year-old, a little girl, she, she looked at everybody and said, well, it's definitely Friday right now, but Sunday's coming, and I hope really soon. A lot of wisdom in those words. It might make a good slogan for her life, right? It's Friday now, but Sunday's coming, and boy, I hope it is soon. There's a lot of people in our own congregation, our community, who are experiencing life as if it were Friday right now. Maybe it's because of a fire or a health crisis or any number of other things that would cause people to, to, to lose hope. We said on Easter Sunday that there are, are many people in our community who are experiencing the Friday world because of financial struggles to the extent that they've ended up on what the city calls the utility disconnect list. People who, uh, barring a miracle, their, their utilities will be disconnected, power shut off, and then all the ramifications in their life that come from that. And so we said on Easter, we said, but I wonder what it would be like if we as a congregation raised money to help pay off that disconnect list. And, and uh, when, when I shared that goal with you, the goal, remember, was $400,000. It seemed like a, a very ambitious goal. I had numerous people throughout the week say, I don't know why you set the goal that high. I started to doubt a little bit myself as well. But it turns out that you didn't raise $400,000. It turns out you crushed $400,000. It turns out you blew by $400,000. And you gave in just 12 days, in just 12 days, you gave this number $674,000. All kinds of people gave, students gave, older people gave, families all kinds of people gave. Some people gave really big amounts, some people gave really small amounts, but everybody gave what they could, however God had blessed them. And that is an insanely, insanely generous number. A lot of love in that number, a lot of hope in that number. 
I really want to just be completely transparent, how we try to do everything here, be completely transparent. We got far more than we expected, so, so what are we going to do with this money exactly, right? So, so let me just show you. Let's just talk it through for a moment. Uh, first, on Good Friday a couple weeks ago, when we talked to the city, now this number fluctuates, but as of that day, there was about $200,000 in uh, debt on the utility disconnect list. Hundreds of families. All that uh, tomorrow uh, will be paid off, eliminated, and they get a fresh start. We said we were going to help people with similar needs, and that's exactly what we're going to do with this other 200, approximately $200,000. We're going to uh, dedicate it to people who are one step away from that city disconnect list. These are people who are on a payment plan with the city, trying their hardest to, to keep things going. Uh, but they are one month away. They're all in precarious financial situations and one month away from being on that list themselves. So the other approximately $200,000 that we raised toward our goal will go to, to that. And then the money we raised above and beyond that we weren't really expecting at all, uh, well, we thought let's invest that in long-term help so that the people who get off the disconnect list and other people like them can stay off of it. So we're going to dedicate that money, that long-term help to help people stay out the disconnect list through Love Columbia, one of our partners in ministry. They do all kinds of things like uh, financial coaching, budget classes, help people find jobs, help people connect with child care. They do all kinds of wonderful things in our city, and they're probably the best ones. They have a great relationship with the city, and so they're the best ones to, to work through with that long-term uh, approach. Now, I, I just want to make sure that you get something, and, and um, if maybe people are listening in uh, that aren't usually a part of our church, I, I want them to catch this too. Uh, you gave that generously to people, maybe some you know in our church, and we don't, wouldn't know who you are, but maybe there are people in our church that are on that list that got help. Or, or, but a lot of people you gave that money, you didn't know, right? And there are no strings attached. We're not trying to get anything. We expect absolutely nothing back. And when you gave, you gave to help people who had a debt that they couldn't pay, people who were in need, people who are often forgotten. You gave it to people who will receive it, people who are white and black, Asian and Latino, people of every race. You gave it to people who are citizens and people who are immigrants, people who are regressive and people who are conservative, people who are straight and people who are part of the LGBTQ community, people who are men and women, atheists, Muslims, Christians, people of any and every religion. You see, Jesus is our example here. He is our model, and he offered his grace to any who would receive it. Let's just pray Pray for the people who, who are struggling, both here in our church and who might receive some of this help. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have blessed us so that we can be a blessing in our community. And I thank you that your spirit is at work here and creating a, a desire to be generous in every part of our life with the people in and outside of our church. And I pray that as these dollars go out from us and into our community and help meet people's needs, that love would go with them and that hope and joy and peace would accompany all that money. That these people who receive this would know that not only have, have we thought of them, but more importantly, that you have thought of them. That you have not forgotten them. 
May this be a blessing to people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I didn't grow up going to church, but one thing my parents did is they sent me to a camp, a Christian camp south of here near Rolla called Turkey Hill Ranch Bible Camp. And it was a great camp, fantastic people, a lot of fun. And although I wasn't really used to church, I loved the chapel meetings. Twice a day you'd go to chapel, you hear a little talk, you sing some songs. I have to admit now decades and decades later that I don't remember much from the talks, probably nothing. And I don't remember any of the songs we sang except one. I remember one song. I'll never be able to get out of, your, out of my mind. It was a song about the end times. And it was a song that was based on a song that had become a little popular in the 1970s by a guy named Larry Norman. So, so here's the, the, the Larry Norman version, a, a short video clip from the song as he performed it. That song at camp, remember we sang that song as a kid at camp, that was my first exposure to uh, what's called the rapture. And the reason I remember that song and no other song and no other talk is because it scared me to death. I mean, what in the world happened to people taken and what happened to the people left behind? All I knew is that you didn't want to be left behind. I got that much from the camp. See, if you were left behind, it meant that you had not been ready when the rapture came. Now, the rapture, if you're not familiar with that word or that belief, it is the belief that at some time in the future, Jesus will return uh, in the air. All the Christians will immediately go up to him. He'll take them back to heaven, and then the whole world will experience a great tribulation, a time of great hardship and suffering, and that eventually this world will be burned up and destroyed. But Christians, they get out of all that because they've been raptured away, or at least that's what the belief is. We're in a sermon series called Eight Bad Ideas That Good Christians, Sincere Christians, Jesus-Loving Christians Believe. And today's bad idea that good Christians believe is the rapture. I mean, just think about it for a second. How weird would it be if all of a sudden a big chunk of the population just floated up in the air? You know, I mean, it'd be kind of bizarre, wouldn't it? Um, it, it, there are all kinds of rapture memes you can go to, like who's going to take care of your pets after the rapture, all kinds of things that you can find online if you're so interested. And this is one meme I like. It's a takeoff Star Trek, uh, ready for the rapture, like beam me up Jesus, right? Beam me up Scotty, beam me up Jesus. Is, does any of this make a difference in how you live your life? I mean, whether you believe in the rapture and that whole set of theology that comes with it or you don't, does any of it really matter in how you live your day-to-day life? Absolutely it does. What we believe about how the story ends affects how we live our life in the middle of the story until we get to the end. It absolutely matters. 
See, if you think all the Christians are going to be removed and then the world is kind of go to hell in a handbasket until it actually all gets blown up, then why would you invest here? Why would you invest in the fight for justice or peace or anything here? Bad theology always has bad outcomes. Bad theology always has bad outcomes, either in our personal life or a community life. I had a friend who took classes at a seminary in Dallas, and one of his professors told the class one time, he just said, hey, uh, maybe you've noticed that a lot of us professors have second jobs, like professor and pastor, professor and consultant, professor and, you know, fill in the blank. And he said the reason that's the case is because when we were young and, and had young families, we were told the rapture was coming soon. The end of the world was coming soon. So we did, we're told we didn't need to save for retirement or save for our kids' colleges. So that's why we're working two jobs and can never retire. You see, what you believe about the end, how, how the story ends, affects how you live day to day. So where did this view of the rapture, where did this teaching, where does it come from? And when you look into it, you realize that it's really pretty new, relatively speaking. It only came on the scene in the 1830s. Before the 1830s, nobody anywhere around the world in churches, any kind of churches, talked about the rapture, which is kind of odd when you consider how much it's emphasized in parts of the American church. The rapture was uh, discovered, if that's how you want to call it, by a guy named John Nelson Darby uh, in the 1830s. He lived in the 1800s. He was a Bible teacher in uh, Britain. And he started talking about the rapture as this time in the future that Jesus would secretly come into the sky, call all the Christians up to him, take them to heaven. And then, like I said, the world would go through a time of great tribulation. And he and others after him had these charts, like these really complicated end times charts of how all this was going to work and when it was going to happen and who was going to go where. I mean, when I look at that, I have no idea what that says. Surely it can't be that complicated, can it? Well, fast forward, fast forward to 1972, and the Billy Graham Association, it releases a film uh, called A Thief in the Night, A Thief in the Night movie poster from it. It was one of those low-budget Christian films, the kind you watched in your church basement because it wouldn't be at the theater. And the story of A Thief in the Night is about a woman named Patty. She's married and her friends, Patty's friends, are trying to get her to become a Christian. They tell her, look, if you don't, you're going to have to go through this tribulation. Well, Patty's trying to figure it out. And then one morning she wakes up and her husband's gone. And it turns out, He's been raptured, of course, right? And so the rest of the film is Patty running around with the United Nations chasing her, trying to give her the mark of the beast. So imagine growing up in your church, watching that in your church basement. It left a lot of people pretty frightened. And then you fast forward again a few years and you get to the book series, the Left Behind book series. And, and, and you know how it got its name, right? Left Behind it was from that song we played a clip of a couple of minutes ago. There's no time to change your mind, for the sun has come and you've been left behind. Sixteen novels. A lot of them, maybe all of them, ended up on the New York Times bestseller list. A few even made it to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Sixty-five million total copies sold. Not just books, but made into movies, video games, kids stuff. 
And, and it was all about, all these things are about how the rapture is going to come and the end of the world is coming with it. But where do we find this in the Bible? Is it anywhere in the Bible? Well, there is a verse that talks about two men working in a field and one taken and one left. Maybe that's what all this is referring to. So let's take a look at it. Matthew chapter 24. Um, This is Jesus speaking. And he says, that is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So he's talking about his own return to earth. Two men will be in the field, one taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. So people read this. People who believe in the rapture read these verses and they say, look, there it is right there in front of you. But is this saying what they think it's saying? I don't think so. Let's step back and put a little bit more context into these verses. So just go a couple verses beforehand, and here's what we read. Again, Jesus is speaking still. It was in the days of Noah, or as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus is talking about his second coming, and he says, hey, it's going to be like it was in the days of Noah. So he's comparing the two. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. In other words, they were just going about the normal, ordinary things in life. Up to the day Noah entered into the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Now, if you go back to the Noah story, and the rains and the floods and the judgment and the ark and all that, who got taken and who was left behind? Just think about it for a second. So this verse finishes, That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women grinding a handmill, one taken and the other left. Now, if you're going back to the Noah story, how did you answer that question? Who was taken? And did you want to be taken or did you want to be left? Well, Noah was the one who was left behind in that story, right? When Jesus is talking about one taken and one left, you want to be the person who is left behind, not the person who is taken in judgment. See, Jesus is not talking about the rapture there. He's talking about when he returns to set his kingdom up here on earth. Well, let, let's look at another verse that people say teaches the rapture. This one in 1 Thessalonians 4. The Apostle Paul's writing, and he says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be snatched up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will be with him forever. So maybe this is talking about the rapture and how Christians meet him in the air. But let's think about what we just read. Oh, does, what direction... What direction was Jesus coming? He's coming down, right? Does it say he then takes everybody back up to heaven? No, it never says anything like that. What's happening in those verses? It's almost as if it's a cosmic Palm Sunday. Go back into Palm Sunday. You know, when Jesus is riding on the donkey and he's riding into Jerusalem as the rightful king, and the people, what do they do? They go out to him as he's coming in. They sing. They, they wave their palm branches. They do all that. And then they walk with him. They usher him into Jerusalem. So that's what's happening in 1 Thessalonians 4. 
is that whether it's metaphorical or physical, I, I'm not sure, but, but the people meet Jesus and they usher him, his followers usher him in to take charge of his kingdom, which is, of course is this earth. Now again, does any of this matter in how you live? Absolutely it does. Remember the seminary professors? How you think the story ends affects how you live when you're in the middle of the story. And rapture and rapture theology, it gives us, I think, a different vision, I think a less biblical vision, of heaven. Let me, let me show you. Here's a guy named Charles Swindoll, a pastor, older guy now, great guy. You can learn a lot of really good stuff from him. But I think when it comes to this rapture theology stuff, I think he gets it wrong. He writes this. Do you realize there are only two eternal things on earth today? Only two. People and God's word. So people in the Bible. Everything else will be ultimately burned up. Everything else. So he's pretty clear. He thinks everything but people and the Bible will be burned. Everything in this world. And here's then how he applies it. He says, kind of sets your priorities straight, doesn't it? So he's saying, look, base your priorities on this truth that, that, that everything in the world other than people in the Bible are going to be burned up. Well, then why in the world would you and I, Christians, invest in a better world? Why would we ever start an orphanage? Or why would we ever start a hospital or a school? If everything's going to be burned, what's it really matter? What it encourages us to do is, is, is divide our life into the sacred and the secular the sacred being things God cares about, which I guess is just people and the Bible, and the secular, everything else. Because according to him, everything's going to burn. But I don't think that's what the Bible says. I don't think the Bible says it's all going to burn. I think just the opposite. The Bible says that Jesus is going to restore. He's going to, he's going to renew. He's going to redeem. He's going to heal our broken world. That's exactly what Peter says in Acts 3. He's preaching a sermon to a large crowd of people, and he says, Heaven must receive him, him being Jesus, until the time comes for God to restore everything. See, that's what God's promise is. It's a promise he made from the prophets a long time ago, that he is going to restore this earth. He hasn't abandoned his creation. He, he's still invested, and in he's going to redeem it. It's like those TV shows, Extreme Home Makeovers. You've seen them, how they, they transform the ordinary to the extraordinary. And, and that's what, uh, this is a picture of one of those. This is a picture of before and after. Same kitchen. One's an ordinary kitchen, and one is the transformed kitchen. And that's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to come back and transform our sin-cursed world. He's going to eradicate sin and bring his love, justice, and mercy to this earth. And then he is going to reign over it. So what do we do between now and when Jesus returns to bring this kind of transformation? Well, Jeremiah 29 gives us our marching orders. He says, also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. So the Israelites, God's people, had been kicked out of Jerusalem. They were exiled in a pagan nation called Babylon. And, and what God tells them to do is to seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. Seek the peace and prosperity of wherever they live. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you'll prosper too. 
So what do we do now that we are citizens of God's kingdom, citizens of heaven, living our life in exile here on earth, waiting one day to, to, to dwell in God's kingdom for all eternity? What do we do? How do we live when we seek the peace and prosperity of our community? We seek the peace and prosperity of our world. We pray to the Lord for it. And that's why Christians at their best have been the ones who have founded schools and orphanages. It's why Christians at our best have been the ones leading adoption agencies and starting foster care agencies. It's why Christians at our best are the ones who began most of the hospitals and were the first in on science. And why Christians at our best have been the leaders of the abolitionist movement to eradicate the evil of slavery See, God, God does not just save our souls. God saves the whole person. And that means that God cares deeply about the same things people in our world, whether they're Christians or not, care deeply about. God cares deeply about things that divide people. He cares deeply about political division and economic injustice and social and racial oppression and unfair business practices and whether or not our legal system is fair. That's why God calls Christians to speak up for those who are too weak, to give voice to the voiceless. It's why, it's why that, 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 that you, when you give, like you did in the fall of 2019, $465,000 to pay off $5 million in medical debt for people living below the poverty line in over 30 counties in Missouri, that's God's work. It's why when you just finished giving $674,000 to keep people's lights turned on, give them hope that that's God's work. It's why when you volunteer at Love Columbia or Big Brother and Big Sister, it's why when you make a donation to the Boys and Girls Club, it's why you serve like we heard in For Columbia. It's why when you start a business and, and, and run a business with integrity and employ people in their jobs, that's God's work or peacefully protest injustice or help bring an end to exploitive loan practices. It's why when you help people find jobs or work in the public health sector or teach kids to read or teach kids in a classroom. It's why when you volunteer at Loaves and Fishes. It's why when you do all those things that you are doing God's work because God cares about the whole person. God cares about the whole world. God is not just coming to save people's souls. Jesus didn't ask us to pray for him to beam us up to heaven. What Jesus taught us to pray is that God's kingdom, that heaven, would come to earth. Let's finish our service by standing and, and, and praying the Lord's Prayer together. This is our blessing today, that we would pray together the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.